That our Old Testament reading is the same as last week's. Huh? Uh, this is not a mistake. Okay, uh, I was supposed to preach last weekend, uh, but I fell terribly ill, uh, seeing that I was in bad shape. Reverend John uh, swapped duties with me. Yeah. I'm still struggling a bit, uh, but uh, so I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak louder than usual today. We're going to begin by revising some biology, um, taxonomy, or biological classification. Uh, is a system used by scientists to arrange living creatures. Classification helps scientists to organize the great diversity of life on Earth into smaller groups. Uh, this makes uh, identifying, describing, and learning about life easier. Living creatures are classified together if they share the same features. The classification system most commonly used today is the Linnaean system developed by Carl Linnaeus in 1758. Uh, the system currently has eight levels. Domain is the highest, most general uh, level of organization. Creatures in the same domain share a few overarching features. Species is the lowest and most specific level of organization. Creatures of the same species share many features and can produce offspring together. The categories that we're most uh, familiar with and which te we teach our children, uh, mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, amphibians, yeah. these are different groups at the class level. Let us have a closer look at this using human beings as an example. Starting from the bottom of this diagram, human beings belong in the animal kingdom because unlike plants and fungi, we are able to move on our own. We are in the phylum chordates because we have backbones. We're in a class of mammals because we have a hair and milk glands. We are of the order of primates because we have collarbones and grasping fingers. Interesting, huh? We belong to the family of hominids because we have relatively flat faces and 3D vision. Finally, we are named Homo sapiens because we stand upright, have large skulls, sorry, large brains, <laughs> thin skulls, and high foreheads. Hence the uh, hairband today, so you can see that I'm human. Anyway. Right, time for pop quiz. Uh, let me blank the screen first. You ready? The question is very simple. How do we classify the living God? Ensure this test unfair. <laughs> Our passage from Leviticus 19 opens with a command to holiness. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This command to holiness is spoken to the entire congregation of Israel, but applies to every single individual. This command to holiness is spoken to the people of God then, but still applies to the people of God today. The church, this congregation, and every Christian is called to holiness. Before we can look at how we may become holy, we need to understand how God is holy. Theologians believe that there are two aspects to God's holiness. Today we'll look at these, and then we will study some specific laws by which we may become holy. Oh, it's not coming out. It, are, are you seeing an outline? No. Ah, there you go. The first aspect of holiness is separation or otherness. 
This is derived from the original Hebrew adjective for holy, which God used to describe himself. Holy means separate or apart. The idea is there exists an infinite qualitative distinction between God and his creation. To put simply, God is utterly different from us. God is so utterly different from us that we must say he is completely separate. We cannot place the living God anywhere in the taxonomy for living creatures because he does not share any similarities with anything. He belongs to a domain like no other. His kingdom is not of this world. God is in a class of his own. He is one of a kind, one of a wholly other kind. Even human beings who are made in the image of God are not in the same category as God. Just as knockoffs and replicas are not the real thing, however much they look the same, humans are not God. God is the uncreated one. We are creatures. Our natures will always be different. Nevertheless, because we're made in his image, we may imitate him in our conduct. We will come back to this in a bit. Now, the Bible expresses the separation aspect of God's holiness using lofty heights. For example, Psalm 57 sings, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Similarly, Psalm 97 sings, For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Another way to express this is to emphasize God's uniqueness. For example, there is no none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. How may we be holy if God's holiness is separation? Leviticus chapter 11 gives us clues to how we may imitate God in this uh, aspect. On the surface, Leviticus 11 appears to be a dietary guidebook instructing the Israelites on what they may or may not eat. But at a deeper level, God is teaching his people to make distinctions. That this is the whole point of the whole chapter is stated in verses 46 to 47. This is the law about bird, beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. God's people are taught to recognize that there are differences within animals, differences within sea creatures, differences within birds, and differences within insects. Ultimately, they are to realize that there are differences within humankind too. The connection between making a distinction and holiness is found later in Leviticus chapter 20. It says here, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beasts from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourself detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The Israelites are taught that there are clean and unclean creatures so that they may appreciate that there are holy and common people. The Israelites must make the distinction 
so that they do not mix with the common people and behave like them. Rather, the Israelites must imitate the ways of God because they are holy to the Lord. Israel became holy when God separated them from the peoples and made them his own possession. To be sure, simply being set apart from everyone else does not make a person holy. I think the word for someone like that is outcast. But the Israelites were set apart from the common pool of human beings to be placed in the same group with God. Israel is holy because they belong to and belong with a holy God. God's holiness became their holiness. In order to remember and keep holy, the Israelites eat only that which is clean and avoid even touching that which is unclean. And of course, there are many other purity laws which they observe to the same. How do we appropriate these teachings to the church today? We know that the dietary laws have been abolished because Jesus declared all foods to be clean. Nevertheless, the principle of making distinctions remains and its connection to holiness is taught and practiced in new ways. For example, as Christians, we are taught that there are distinctions in times and places. There is a time for secular work and a time for Sabbath rest. There is time to enjoy the world and a time to enjoy God. There is a place for ordinary eating and drinking and a place for holy eating and drinking. Therefore, Christians deliberately separate ourselves from the world and gather as a church before God in worship once a week. Ultimately, this practice teaches and reminds us that Christians are different from the rest of humankind. Christians are holy to the Lord. So next time someone swans you, wow, so holy, yeah, every week go church. You can tell them straight, yes, I'm holy. Because the Lord my God is holy. You can come too. You can also be holy. Invite them to church. Lah, huh? yeah. We are holy, but not exclusive. Like the Israelites, we did not become holy by our own effort. Our holiness is possible because God in his gracious initiative called us out of the world and brought us into the church of his son, Jesus Christ. In his grace and sovereignty, he made an exception and placed us in the same class as him. We are holy because we belong to and belong with a holy God. Something Pastor Kong Hee said about our late Canon James Wong stuck with me till today. After witnessing Canon Wong's humble humility when working with international counterparts, Pastor Kong said Canon may not be recognized as world class, but he is God class. What a wonderful turn of phrase. I was inspired, and from then on, I secretly aspired to be God class too. Okay, well, it. <laughs> but following this study of holiness, I dare say that every Christian is already God class. Yeah? You are God class. Because when God made us his own, we belong with him in a class of his own. God class, right? Uh, these are God class seats, huh, by the way. Thus, we live out our holiness by persisting and insisting on leaving the world behind to be with our holy God and his holy church in this holy place at this holy hour. But we will do more than attending services because holiness 
is more than separation. The second aspect of holiness is perfection or goodness. When we sing that God is wonderful, beautiful, glorious, magnificent, and excellent, we are praising this aspect of his holiness. Indeed, the Lord our God is perfectly good, perfect in everything good. His thoughts are pure, his words are delightful, and his deeds are praiseworthy. He's like a fresh white shirt, spotless. A brand new book, flawless. And he is blameless. His track record is clean. Despite drawing sinful humans to himself, God remains untouched, unstained, unblemished by human sin and evil. In fact, the opposite happens. When God's perfection encounters human, uh, sinful humans, our sin is exposed. Our evil is found out. And evildoers hasten to flee from God and sinners hide their faces because they know they are doomed to perish. For example, when the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the Holy Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me, I am as good as dead, for I am a man of unclean lips. And when Peter realizes that Jesus is the Holy Lord, he fell down at his knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Yet, Sinful humans have a chance at redemption if they do not run away, but turn back to worship God. This is possible because Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sins upon the cross. We need not fear God's perfection because God will not condemn those who seek refuge in his son. This is good news for the entire human race. But we were saying, God remains absolutely pure in spite of his encounters with sinful humans. Kaobat has this to say. In him, of course, there is no sin which he has first to resist, but in him there is more. There is purity. Indeed, he is himself the purity, which as such contradicts and will resist everything which is unlike itself, yet which does not evade this opposing factor. But because it is the purity of the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally reacts against it, resisting it, judging it in its encounter with it, but in doing so, receiving and adopting it, and thus entering into the fellowship with it, which redeems it. Actually, I'm not very sure what it means. But there are people who are smarter than me here, so this is for you, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, but for the rest of us who don't have permanent head damage, uh, I think he means. Uh, I think he means God's perfection is not some passive purity which remains pure by avoiding sin, but His is an active perfection which judges, confronts, and then purifies sin. The author of Hebrews did say that our God is a consuming fire. Hence, instead of being contaminated by evil in the world, God destroys any evil that comes into his presence. Instead of being tainted by fellowship with sinners, God purifies those who come near to him with faith. Our sinfulness does not affect God, but God's holiness may save us or kill us, depending on our response to him. How may we be holy? 
if God's holiness is perfection. Leviticus chapter 19 reviews how we may imitate God in this sense. Now on the surface, Leviticus 19 appears to be a mishmash of uh, random laws. Yeah? But when we study it carefully, we realize that it is an elaboration on the Ten Commandments, just not in the traditional order that we are familiar with. Now, if God gave the command to holiness in the beginning of the chapter and then proceeds to elaborate on the Ten Commandments, then it stands to reason that holiness involves obeying the Ten Commandments. I mean, if God is perfect in every way, then we will be good if we follow what he says. The Apostle Peter affirms this when he expounded on the command to holiness. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Imitating God's perfection involves changing the way we conduct ourselves. And the key is not to obey our passions, but to obey God. Obedience to the truth purifies our souls. So far, we've been talking about perfection at quite an abstract level. We shall now turn to the specific laws that our lectionary has appointed for us to see concretely how obedience results in goodness. In particular, we're going to apply these laws to conflict management. Allow me to first paint a conflict scenario as a basis for our application. My hypothetical uh, scenario is guided by this model of conflict escalation from the Danish Center for Conflict Resolution. Beginning from the bottom of the stairs, the scenario is this. Two colleagues, Peter and Paul, are in conflict. It started out as a disagreement over who should perform a new task at work. Peter believes it is Paul's job. Paul thinks it's Peter's responsibility. When the deadline drew near, the bosses told Peter to just get it done. Peter completes the task, but thinks that the whole thing is unfair. Peter believes that Paul pushed the work to him. The problem expands. Oh, sorry. Yeah. The problem expands when Peter recalls the times when Paul has evaded responsibilities or gotten away with doing less. He's always been like that, Peter thinks. As his anger accumulates, Peter stops talking to Paul. Peter begins to read things in the Paul's actions at work and analyzes his conversations with other people to find fault with him. He also seeks out allies who agree that Paul is problematic. They compare notes, fueling the gossip. In no time, Peter's dislike for Paul intensifies into hatred. At this stage, everything Paul says is wrong. Everything Paul does is bad. There are no redeeming qualities in Paul. Eventually, Paul refuses to work, uh, Peter refuses to work with Paul, insults Paul during meetings, and deliberately sabotages his work. Anyone who tries to mediate are considered naive or hoodwink or part of the enemy camp. Open hostility becomes more and more frequent, more and more serious. Finally, Coexistence is no longer possible. The model suggests that polarization may lead Peter and his allies to leave the company. 
So Peter would rather try to get the bosses to terminate Paul because why should Peter give up his job? And that's the whole scenario. Now, let us apply the word of God to this scenario, which I believe is quite relatable, yeah, to see how obeying God's commandments can prevent a bad situation. Starting from the top this time, Peter tried to convince the bosses to terminate Paul. It would not have come to this if Peter did to others what he would have others do to him. Since he did not want to give up his job over this conflict, he should not make Paul lose his job. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Moving down, Peter openly attacked Paul at work. It would not have come to this if Peter did not try to take things into his own hands. You shall not take vengeance. Peter's dislike for Paul intensified into hatred. It would not have come to this if Peter did not stay angry and did not entertain thoughts of getting back at Paul. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. When Peter stopped talking to Paul, gossip starts. It would not have come to this if Peter and his allies did not trade news and information and speculations about Paul. You shall not go around as slanderous. Peter's anger increased because he recalled what Paul did in the past. It would not have come to this if Peter did not build up his anger against Paul. You shall not bear a grudge. Peter thinks that it is Paul's fault when it's really the bosses who did not clarify their job scope. It would not have come to this if Peter had judged the situation impartially. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Finally, the disagreement started over who should perform a new task at work. It would not have come to this if Peter had gone to talk to Paul or clarify with their bosses directly. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. The conclusion is, it's the boss's fault. Wait, 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 no, anyhow. Uh, <laughs> the conclusion is, if Peter had obeyed the holy commandments of the Lord, he could have remained on good terms with Paul and continue in a good workplace environment. This is the goodness that God desires for us. Now, isn't it a wonder that the laws in verses 15 to 18 match up so nicely with this secular model of conflict escalation? This just goes to show that God is perfect. In his perfect knowledge, he already knows how human beings will disagree and fight among ourselves and escalate things. Therefore, in his perfect love and foresight, he gave us the laws long ago, so that if we study and follow his perfect ways, we can avoid hurting each other. I know that it's not easy to obey these laws. As I write this sermon, well, I wrestle with God. Because I've been in many conflicts myself, whether as the leading character or supporting cast. I know that the fire of anger once kindled burns powerfully. I know that hatred is an immovable rock once it lodges in our hearts. 
and I have tasted the sea of bitterness deep down inside. But we take heart that our God who has commanded us to be holy is higher, stronger, and more powerful than the forces that happens in us. He is a consuming fire who can devour anger, dissolve hatred, and evaporate bitterness. Therefore, let us draw near to him in prayer and ask him to purify us and renew our strength to obey his commandments. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you are the thrice holy God. And you have called us to be your own children. But we sit here, Lord, knowing in our hearts and in our minds that we are sinful men and women. For we have been in much conflict with each other. We fight and disagree, we are angry, and we hate. And so, Lord, as we come before you this morning, and having heard of your laws, we want to be holy, Lord, for you call us to be holy. And so we bear our hearts before you today, Lord, and ask you to search inside for those grudges that we cannot remove, for the anger that keeps burning, for the rocks of hatred, and for the seas of bitterness. We bear our hearts before you, Lord, today, and ask that you come by your Holy Spirit as a consuming fire and purify us. Invite you to bear your hearts before God and lay before him the people or situations that you are angry and, and upset with. Lay them before God now. Lord, have mercy upon us. You see these things that we bear before you, and we ask that you come powerfully to purify us. Lord, we are your people called by your name. You command us to be holy. Therefore, cleanse us today. Help us now. Devour our anger. Dissolve our hatred and evaporate the bitterness in our hearts. And as we come before your table later to partake in your holy supper, we pray that you will renew us in our strength to obey your commandments and help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>